You're listening to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from Senior Pastor Aaron Klein. Well, obviously, as you saw in, in the video that we were just watching, uh, we spent a lot of time this week uh, talking with the kids about what does it mean for us to shine Jesus' light, even in difficult situations. In fact, on day two, we spent a little bit of time talking about how do you handle and shine Jesus' light even when you don't always get along. So we had the kids do something, and we were asking them, what is greater? And we said, if you think that music is better and greater, lean to the left, and if you think that movies are better and greater, lean to the right. And of course, as the kids are doing this, what's the point? The point is that at some point along the way, they are going to be butting heads. Now, you and I know what that is like as well. They say that if you want to avoid arguments, what should you avoid? Uh, talking about things like politics and religion, those kind of things. Of course, we recognize that it doesn't just come around politics and religion. There can be all kinds of things that people may disagree about. I mean, if I were to ask you this morning, those of you who think dogs are better, raise your hand. Okay? Those of you who are cat people, would you raise your hand? Okay, see, the correct answer is dogs. <laughs> right? If I were to ask you, What's the better baseball team, the Chicago White Sox or the Chicago Cubs? Who are Sox fans? And none of you probably even care about this. I'm from Chicago, right? Who are the Cubs fans? Oh, my goodness. See, the answer clearly is the Chicago White Sox. All right? Now, you, you understand this. Like, if I were to ask you this morning, who is greater? Like, who's the greatest president? Or who's the greatest composer? Or who's the greatest basketball player, right? Or what's the greatest movie? You and I could probably get into all kinds of different debates about who and what is greater. Now the reason I say this is because we've been in a sermon series where it's entitled Greater. And throughout it, the writer of Hebrews has been trying to remind us that ultimately Jesus is greater. When Jesus is compared to all the competition, the answer is always Jesus. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than the entire priestly system and the sacrificial system. And when we know that, what should the response be? The response should be to run our race with perseverance. Well, this morning, as we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 12, we are going to be reminded that God's grace is greater than the law. Now, I was saying last week that if you're tired of all the different running illustrations that we've been offering, uh, it's kind of a sorry, not sorry type moment because we simply have to go where the text is leading us. And over and over again, we've seen how this writer of Hebrews has been saying, no, you have to run your race with perseverance. And so we see once again this juxtaposition that this author is giving to us this morning. And he's saying, you can either run towards the law and all that that entails, or you can run towards grace 
and what is offered to us there. You can either run towards Sinai or you can run towards Zion. You can run towards the law. You can run towards grace. But he wants us to understand this, that if you are running towards Sinai, that you are running on a treadmill. And it's always the same thing over and over again. It's the same laws and the same rituals and the same sacrifices that you're running and never really getting anywhere. Instead, he's inviting us to run towards something that is better. Now, as we begin to unpack this this morning, I think it's important for us just to spend a couple of moments talking about what the law is. Because for us, we're not necessarily Jewish, so we may not necessarily know all the things that are entailed in that. If you go back to the Old Testament, especially those first five books of the Bible, you will find the Torah, right? Which is the law or the guidance or the direction. For Jewish people, it was all about your adherence to the law. See, when you and I talk, we might say, hey, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? But a Jewish person would never ask each other that. They would never ask, hey, do you have a relationship with God? They would ask, are you adhering to the law that was given? Now, we're probably the most familiar with the Ten Commandments, which were given at Sinai. We're going to be talking about that in just a moment. But the reality is there was over 600 commandments that are given in the Torah. Uh, 300 that are the things that are like, thou shalt not. And like about 300 or so that are like, hey, these are the things that you should do. And the point of Hebrews 12 is to say, you are no longer under the law, but you are instead under grace. You are not marching towards a tabernacle or a temple where God dwelt. You are marching towards a person who is Jesus Christ. You are not marching towards a mountain. You are marching towards a mediator. You're not marching towards Sinai you are marching towards Zion. Now, why is this important? I think it's important because we need to understand uh, the way in which we picture who God is really determines the way in which you and I live life. See, if you're the type of person who believes that God really just set everything in motion, but now God is just kind of indifferent, he's kind of pulled back, he doesn't really care, about what you do, if your picture of God is that God is really always angry and always ornery, and God is always just waiting for you to screw up sometime so that he can just kind of go, ha ha, I got him now, right? If that's your picture of God, that God is always waiting to strike you down, that God only really cares about your adherence to the law, that's going to frame the way in which you see God. Of course, if you believe that God wants to have a relationship with you, that, that God is the kind of God who wants to show you love and grace, that will shape the way in which you, we view God. See, I think sometimes we have a tendency to, to lean more law, and sometimes we have a tendency to lean more grace, right? There's, there's people that, you know, we often joke about, are you like a James person or not? There's people who are like, yeah, I kind of lean James. I kind of lean law. And there's other people who are like, well, no, I, I kind of lean grace. The, the thing is, is if we lean too far towards grace, then it's like, well, you can just do whatever you want to do. 
And it doesn't really matter because then oh, it's all grace in the end. Or you can lean all law and be like, yeah, you know, we just want to beat people over the head. How, how do we hold law and grace together? And that really shapes the way you and I approach life. Now, throughout the letter to the Hebrews, the author has had something to say about that. For those who were thinking about returning to Judaism, he spent a lot of his time talking about the difference between the old covenant and the old law and the new covenant. And as we make the turn towards the end of Hebrews chapter 12 and really the end of Hebrews together, what we're going to see is this juxtaposition offered to us again by describing the two mountains. So there are the two mountains. Now, if you've brought your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be looking together right now at verses 18 to 21. Though I want to invite you to keep your Bibles handy because we're going to come back to these uh, other verses a little bit later on. And he's going to be making this comparison between Sinai and Zion. So here now the reading of God's word. It says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. I want you to take a step back for a moment and imagine that you are an Israelite living in 15th century BC. You have spent your entire life enslaved in the land of Egypt. And then a man by the name of Moses appears and he has a relationship with this God of your ancestors and you have seen God put God's power on display through Moses. And you've seen the way in which this Egyptian empire has been humbled. In fact, for the first time in your life, you are free. But now that you're free and you're walking around in the Sinai desert, there are some questions that arise. There's a whole new set of problems. Oh, where are we going to get food? Where are we going to get water? Who's going to lead us? Who's going to guide us? And again, you see God provide for you. You see God providing manna and water. You see God leading you through the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And you're marching around, and eventually you end up at Mount Sinai where God appeared to Moses those years before. Now, you've seen God's incredible power on display You've seen the plagues. You've seen the Egyptian army drowned. You've seen the provision of food and the provision of direction. Let's be honest, you've never seen anything like this. You have Mount Sinai that's in front of you, and it's covered by a thick, dark cloud. And in this darkness is pierced by lightning and it's pierced by thunder. Exodus 19, 18 and 19 describe it this way. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder 
and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him in thunder. You're struggling to keep your balance because of an earthquake. But the truth is, your knees are quaking because of the fear that you have in front of you. And what's happening? Moses disappears into the cloud and then returns and says, don't come towards this mountain or you will be killed. You're going to die. And in your mind, you're like, you didn't have to tell me that. <laughs> like, Because I didn't want to get close anyway. But it gets worse. Through the cracking of the thunder and the rumbling of an earthquake, a voice is heard. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God himself speaks from the mountain. In fact, the experience is so terrifying that you say to Moses, you go and talk to God. Like, we don't want anything to do with it. Listen to Exodus 20, 18 to 21. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and spoke, smoke, they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I want you to think about that for a moment. If you were with the people that day, and you witnessed the things that they were witnessing, how do you think you would have reacted? What would be your picture of God? You know, it's interesting, because we've said in this series, as we've quoted from the author of Hebrews, we can approach the throne of God with confidence. I don't know if the people who were gathered around Sinai would have felt that way. Now the truth is, sometimes you and I can approach God pretty nonchalantly. Right? Like, we're just best buds. Like, ah, it's no big deal. Right? It's God, right? So, on the other hand, maybe we take it to the other side, and it's like, well, you know what, it's, it's pretty just cool, you know, we're best buds. But the, the truth is, we wouldn't look at it if we were amongst the crowd that day. The Hebrew says that even Moses was trembling. By the way, if you've been following along in our book, Michael Kruger states it this way, this terrifying scene highlights God's holiness. God is the Lord. He is the creator. He's not just a better version of us. He is something wholly different than us. His standard of holiness is utterly perfect. That is why in the story of Mount Sinai, God is distant. He is not inviting people to come close to him. He is telling them to stay away because he is holy and they are not. See, at Sinai, you find death. Death if you approach the mountain, and death because the law has been given and you cannot keep the law. You find darkness. 
you find the law that reminds you of the darkness of sin. You find a fire that consumes. You find gloom. You find storms. And the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make is to say, and you want to go back to that mountain? Like, you want to abandon your faith in Jesus and you want to go back to Judaism? That's what you want to run towards? He says, there is something far better for you to run towards. And we see it in verses 22 to 24. So listen, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know, I think about the fact that we had kids in our building all week long, and if you were to ask them the theme, whatever it was, they would shout out, Shine Jesus' light! This is what we heard the kids saying. When you're happy or you're sad, you know, when you're struggling or you need help, what do we do? We shine Jesus' light. And one of the games that we played during the week, you saw some of those pictures. The kids are outside, and there's a string that's tied up, and there's two cups that are pushed end to end. And the kids have got these squirt bottles, and they're trying to squirt as hard as they can to move the cup in one direction or the other. I want you to think about the fact if one of those destinations was Sinai and the other one was Zion, which of those directions do you hope would end up winning. And I love the fact that on Thursday, as the gospel message was proclaimed to the kids in a very clear way, and we were praying that it was going to fall upon fertile soil and hearts that were ready to hear, as the gospel was being proclaimed to them, which mountain do you think we focused on? Right? It, it was the mountain of grace. We wanted them to see Zion. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to hear that God is a holy God. I'm not saying that we don't need to hear the fact that God is also a consuming fire. I'm not saying, like, oh, no, you don't have to follow the laws or its commands. But in the end, we want the kids to recognize, yes, there is a problem with sin, but it's the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that is the mountain that we want you to run towards. We want you to run towards forgiveness. We want you to run towards grace. We want you to run towards Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, don't run towards the law. Run towards grace. Don't run towards the old covenant. Run towards the new covenant. Don't run towards the physical mountain and what that represents. Run towards the spiritual mountain and what that represents. Don't run backwards towards Judaism. Run towards Jesus. 
Because Sinai was forbidding and terrifying, but Zion is inviting and gracious. Sinai was closed to all. You could not approach the mountain or you would die. But Zion is open because Jesus Christ met the terms of Sinai and then stands in our place for everyone who puts their faith in him. Sinai was filled with tangible things that you could touch and, and the, the tabernacle and, and later on it would be the temple where the sacrifices were offered over and over again and the blood was poured out on the altar. But there is the blood of a better covenant and that is Jesus. Sinai was a place of fear of trembling and of horror, where people were confronted with the law, the commandments, the judgments, and condemnation. But Zion is a picture of grace, of forgiveness, of atonement, and of salvation. In fact, if you look at verses 22 to 25, there are actually seven different reasons why, he says, uh, Zion is better than Sinai. The first is this, Zion is considered the mountain of God. Yeah, it's a physical mountain, but it's really a spiritual location. In fact, in some ways I've been probably saving this reference to today, and as I was reading through the passage, it just really seemed to fit in what we were going to be talking about today. Uh, when Nicole and I had an opportunity to visit Israel a number of months ago, there were uh, things that we had learned along the way. We've been sharing many of those things, but this is one that just felt so fitting for this moment. I know on Easter, I shared with you about how we were at Caesarea Philippi. You're going to see a picture of this place just as a reminder of what this place was. This is in front of this cave uh, where there was a temple known as the Temple of Pan. It was one of the pagan gods that was here in this area of Caesarea Philippi. And this temple that was in front of that cave, people would sacrifice their children and they would throw their bodies into this cave. There was a river that flowed out of that as well. And so I want you to picture this because Jesus brings his disciples up to this place and he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? And some people are saying, well, you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah or you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in that moment, in that place, Jesus said this, Peter, you are the rock, and on the rock of this confession that you have made, I will build my church. And then he says what? And the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. Now, what they pointed out for us is that in this place, this is the headwaters of the Jordan River. And there are two other rivers that join together to form the Jordan, but it's here, this middle river, at which Jesus makes this statement. And one of the things that they pointed out for us is the fact that this river forms the Hebrew letter 
Sheen. So you're going to see this on the screen here. This is the Hebrew letter Sheen. And the Sheen stands for Shaddai. All right, this is one of the letters that they would use for the name of God, so the El Shaddai. As our guide, G, said it's Shmuel, so to protect Israel's doors. They, they were saying that during the Passover, if the people were going to be writing in blood over their doorposts, this could very well have been the letter that they had put over their doorposts, the name of God signifying that we are a Hebrew household. So the angel of death passes over. In fact, if you've ever been to a Jewish person's home, you will see a mezuzah. And on that mezuzah outside, you will see this letter, the letter Sheen. Now, why do I say this? It's because when we visited the city of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem is also laid out like the Hebrew letter, Sheen. You're going to see this picture here. There are three valleys, and there are three mountains. The valleys are the Kidron Valley, the Hinnom Valley, and the Triopian Valley. And between these valleys are these mountains. Now, you look at it from the top of the Mount of Olives, and realistically, they just look like little hills. They don't look like mountains in and of themselves. But there are these three mountains, Mount Ophel, Mount Zion, and Mount Moriah. Now, they were explaining this, that in Hebrew, the word Ophel means my fortress, or my tower, or stronghold. Well, when you look at the Old Testament, and you look at the Psalms, who is always referred to as a stronghold or as a tower? It's God, God the Father. And then you get to Mount Moriah, and Moriah means to see God or to be seen of God. And by the way, in Genesis chapter 22, as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God provides a ram for them caught in the thicket, this is where the temple was placed. The temple was placed. The temple mount is there on the top of Mount Moriah. The sacrifices that were offered on behalf of the sins of the people. Well, how do we see God? It's Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. In Zion, depending on how you pronounce it, can mean the mark or the sign, or the way mark. Well, in, in Ephesians, what's the mark that we've been given? It's the mark, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And so you have the city of Jerusalem with the name of God in it. Listen, what 2 Chronicles 6, 6 says, but now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. And I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. In 2 Chronicles 33, 7, it says, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name in it forever. So I want you to picture this. Here is Jesus. He is standing at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And he is saying, I am the living water. The psalmist says, there is a river 
whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her and she will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. And so this river that flows down into the new Jerusalem of God, surrounded by the 12 tribes which represent the nations, the confession that Jesus is making here is what he, they were saying is a Trinitarian confession that the Shaddai, the Sheen, not only shapes the way in which Jerusalem as a city is formed, but it also shapes the way it begins. And it begins at the headwaters with the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is why Zion is a better place. Yes, it is a physical place, but it is just a placeholder that we will experience with a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where God himself and the Trinity dwell. And that's just the first reason why it's a better place than Sinai. By the way, there's six others. The angels in joyful assembly. There are the saints who are born into Jesus, whose names are written in the book of life. By the way, meaning that this mountain isn't just for Jewish people. It's for everyone. It's a better city because God is in his city who, yes, is a righteous judge as he is at Sinai. But now there is Jesus who is a mediator and whose blood was poured out. And through him, we have been made perfect. And I want us to understand this is why it's good news, but there's even better news that this passage offers us. And the reason is this. It's because this first mountain was shakable, but this second mountain is unshakable. It's the shakable versus the unshakable. Notice what verses 25 to 27 say. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? And at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. See, at Sinai, the earth shook. And you were always on shaky ground. Because you never knew if you were good enough, if you were holy enough. You could keep some commandments, but there were always more to follow. And I wonder, how many of you are here this morning, find yourself exhausted? Exhausted because you're always trying to prove to God that you are worthy enough for him to love you worthy enough to receive his forgiveness, worthy enough to approach heaven. 
How many of you feel like sometimes you are on a treadmill? You are always running, but you never feel like you are getting anywhere. That's because there's a better mountain. And it's one that's unshakable. It's because you and I stand in the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord that we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. One that is not based upon our goodness, but upon Christ's grace. And it is a mountain that can never be shaken. No power of hell, no scheme of man will ever shake what God has done. Yes, God shook the earth at Sinai. But God shook the earth that day again at Calvary. And that earthquake caused the temple curtain to be torn in two. And because of that, we have access to God by his death and resurrection. And make no mistake, according to Revelation 16, God will shake the earth once again when Jesus returns and there will be a final judgment. On that day, all the worldly powers and all the authorities will be defeated and overthrown for only what is done in Christ will be what remains and will be unshakable. This is why the author of Hebrews tries to remind us over and over again on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking, quaking, shaking sand. And what should the response be? To worship and to thank God. Notice what verses 28 to 29 say. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For God is a consuming fire. I know it is terrifying to think that God is a consuming fire. And indeed it is terrifying. And it will be terrifying. But you don't have to be terrified if you are in Christ. The fire will not consume you. The old sinful ways will indeed be swallowed up and they will be burned off. And you who are in the process of being sanctified right now, of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, will be fully refined, fully made pure as Jesus is pure. But you needn't worry. Instead, we can worship God with all of our hearts. We do not need to approach God begging for mercy. We can run towards his holy mountain with hope because of Jesus Christ. Beloved people, may we rest in a greater mountain today. Mount Zion because of Mount Calvary. And may it lead to us having greater worship in our hearts in our lives, and in our church.
Let's pray. Lord, you indeed are greater. And you have shown us a better way and a greater way. Lord, for those who struggle, Lord, struggle with grace because, Lord, they're caught up in living according to the law and never feeling like they measure up and never feeling like they're good enough. Lord, you call us to be holy as you are holy. You, you give us the law, but it is for our benefit. Lord, as a better way to live. And yes, there will be moments when we make mistakes. There will be moments when we fall. But Lord, we thank you that we can stand firm on the solid ground and rock of Jesus Christ who has fulfilled the law to perfection and who has given his life in our place because he is the greater sacrifice. He is the greater mediator. He is the greater blood. He is the greater mountain. And Lord, we pray that this day would be a day when we are running towards him, where we can know that indeed we can approach you with confidence not because of who we are, but Lord, because of who Jesus Christ is and because of what he has done for us. Lord, may we rest in that grace. May we stand in that grace and on that rock of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening, and check out our other discussions and messages. To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us, and have a blessed day.